Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, the Auckland Faculty. I'm Dr Louise Kugler and today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr Rebecca Heyman about childhood constipation. Rebecca is a specialist paediatrician who works at Kids First in South Auckland. She grew up in the Bay of Plenty and attended medical school in Dunedin. After graduating, she moved to Melbourne and worked at the Royal Children's Hospital before moving back to New Zealand to complete her training. Welcome, Rebecca. Kia ora, Louise, and thank you for having me along this morning. So in this podcast, we're going to explore the optimal management for childhood constipation, and we're going to discuss a case. So Master F is a slim eight-year-old New Zealand European boy. He comes to your surgery with his mother. She tells you that he is often constipated and has soiling in his pants. It is causing them both significant distress. So Rebecca, thinking about childhood constipation, can you provide our listeners with a definition, please? So I suppose a formal definition of constipation involves um, uh, infrequent um, stalling. So this would be less than two times a week. Um, and then a history of painful or hard bowel motions that have been hard to pass. Um, and this usually has been present for at least the last um, month. However, when I take a history, I tend to focus more on what the stool looks like and whether it's painful. Quite often in older children, parents won't have been looking at the, at the stool. And so if you just ask, you know, are you constipated? Everybody says no. Um, but if you go a little bit further into the history, then you might find that um, when children are stalling, they're passing small, hard stools that might be, I, I call them either small little rabbit, dro rabbit droppings or um, large um, elephant droppings, with, which are big and round and hard. And um, they might be sore to pass. They might not come very often, so only a couple of times a week. Or they might just be very large stools that sort of block the toilet and are just are painful to pass. So, Rebecca, why do children get constipated? What's the pathophysiology? So, it's different at different ages, so it is important to think about it in, in terms of age groups. And I think we should also separate constipation from other um, more serious things that might make you a little bit blocked up. So if we're just talking about constipation, it tends to happen when there's a change. So in an infant, um, it will be around the time that solids are introduced or there's a change in formula. In a toddler, it will be around the time of toilet training. Where, And if you think about it, it makes sense. You're, you're teaching um, the toddler that they need to hold on um, and then sometimes they get too good at holding on and then they can get a little bit constipated. The other times that it can happen are when um, you've had a gastrointestinal illness. So children might have vomiting and diarrhea and then afterwards they can get a little bit blocked up and then that can lead to a pattern of being a bit constipated. And I, th I think we need to remember that constipation is a chronic illness. So it can start quite quickly quickly with an acute thing like a like a gastrointestinal illness and then what happens is the stool collects in the bowel it stretches the bowel allows more stool to collect and then you get into this pattern where more and more is collecting 
the, I think the other time that we quite often see kids getting into trouble is when they start school. I think there's two reasons for that. One is that school um, can be a little bit of a, a stressful transition. Um, and the other reason is that the school toilets can be pretty disgusting sometimes. So, you know, sometimes just with a little bit of exploring, you can work out that the child doesn't want to go to the toilet at school because there's, um, you know, they're scared that someone's going to run in and see them. The, um, there's never any toilet paper. It smells really bad. Um, things like that and so sometimes um, you can look into you know trying to find a solution by actually making going to the toilet at school an okay thing so um what what happens when, when there's a there's a triggering event so that we've talked about so say changing um onto solids or um trying to toilet train um, and for whatever reason the stool is withheld in the bowel for a little while and and that allows it to um, become a little bit drier and a little bit harder. And then that stool um, sits there and um, can stretch the bowel. And your bowel can actually stretch quite a lot. And then that allows more poo, more poo to come in and uh, it sits there and the child passes a poo and it's a bit hard. So then they really don't want to do it again. So they do things to try and stop passing the poo. So they'll you might see them kind of jiggling or doing what we call withholding manoeuvres where they're trying to hold on to the poo and they don't and they, they don't want it to come out because it hurt. And then this just leads into a cycle where the, the poo then just has more chance to accumulate, more chance to get hard and painful, and then stretch the bowel a little bit more so more poo can come and sit in there. And what will quite often happen in that situation is that children will still be doing um, passing a bowel motion every day um, but it will be these little hard um, nuggets that are just sort of dropping out and it's not actually evacuating the whole bowel. And then you can, you can get a little bit of overflow diarrhea. So the, they might eat something that makes the stool a little bit more runny and then this um, will just come around the outside of the stool. So um, I thought, like later on you're going to ask me about how common um, constipation is and I think that it's actually really common, but quite often people just don't realise that that's what it is. So they'll come and say their child has diarrhoea and you need to take a really good history about what's actually happening to work out that it's probably overflow rather than diarrhoea. Fantastic. Thanks, Rebecca. So are there any clues in the history when we are taking a history to make this diagnosis? For this case, it's pretty straightforward because they've come along and said... Um, that she's constipated, um, or he is constipated. But quite often, they'll come along and the presenting complaint will be abdominal pain or diarrhoea, or maybe painful to pass stools, which would be quite a good clue. So I think when you have those diagnoses it's, um, or those presenting symptoms, it's worth asking a little bit more in depth about the stalling pattern. So I, I usually bring out the Bristol stool chart and ask um, the child if they can identify what type of poo um, they're having. Um, I'll ask the parents, and the parents will usually have not looked, and so part of their homework will be to go away and actually have a look at a couple of poos in the toilet and um, sort of work out exactly what is going on, have, maybe fill in a sort of three-day um, stalling chart so that you get a really good idea of how often they're passing a poo, 
um, when they do, what it, what it looks like, if they've got any pain associated with it. And then other things to ask about, are what are they eating, how much water are they drinking, um, and is the, is the um, diarrhoea or the tummy pain coming at around the time when they are eating? So we know that you have the, the gastrocolic reflex, which makes your bowel contract and have peristalsis. And so that would be the time when you might get a little bit of um, overflow diarrhoea or you might get some abdominal pain. And so if you've got a history of the pain connected to when you eat, that kind of points you more in that constipation direction. So the other important things to um, to ask about is if there's any blood in the in the stool and um, whether it's if there is blood if it's mixed in or if it's sitting on top if there's blood on the toilet paper and what you're thinking about in terms of constipation is is there an anal tear there um, but obviously when we get onto differential diagnoses you're also thinking about other things that could cause diarrhea. So Rebecca, examining our patient is important. What clues are we looking for when we examine these children? I suppose the main reason that I really examine children with constipation is to exclude my red flag diagnoses. I would start by making sure that they were weighed and I had a height um, because constipation shouldn't be affecting your growth. And if there is any problem with growth going on, then you need to start thinking about other problems. Then I usually examine the child's abdomen and I'm looking for any large hard masses that um, could be causing constipation. Um, but usually what you find is some soft palpable stool um, which confirms your diagnosis of constipation. Um, I'd also have a look at the anal region and just make sure that everything looked um, as if it should be there. So in a younger baby, you'd be making sure that the anus was in the right place and, not, and that, it, that it was um, perforate. And um, you're looking for anal tears or any blood, so any complications from the constipation. And then I think what I believe the, one of the most important things to do in, in your examination for children with constipation is to check their is to have a look at their spine and then check their knee reflexes. So the sorts of um, nasty things that can cause um, constipation are also probably going to be causing um, lower limb neurology. So if your child has got a normal appearing spine and normal knee reflexes and they walked into the clinic, you can be pretty reassured that is unlikely and that you're dealing with um, common childhood constipation. Investigations, Rebecca, is this something that we need to consider, are there any investigations that we should be thinking about ordering in constipated children? I mean, I hardly ever order investigations. Sometimes people um, want to order abdominal x-rays. Um, there's really no indication to order an abdominal x-ray for constipation. You should be able to determine your diagnosis on history. Um, if you have a feel of their tummy, you might be able to feel some palpable stool. Uh, if you're concerned that it's not stool, then probably the next best test would be an ultrasound, not an um, abdominal x-ray. Most of the studies show that abdominal x-rays are not helpful at all in terms of diagnosis. Um, sometimes, I, I think probably the only time that I and my colleagues would use an abdominal x-ray is when we're trying to convince um, the parents that the child is constipated. Um, and I don't know that that's always that successful. The problem with the 
with an abdominal x-ray is that it's a moment in time. So if you see stool in there, that doesn't mean that it's hard constipated stool. It just means that the child needs to do a poo. And then if you don't see very much, that could mean that it's just not being picked up on the x-ray. So it's not really a helpful test. The other tests in terms of um, blood tests are when you're starting to think about other um, causes, so things like celiac disease. And so I suppose I would do that based on whether I was suspicious that that was the underlying cause, but I wouldn't do it as part of a screening test. I think constipation is so common that my approach would be to treat it first line and then if after six months you weren't really having that much success then at that point might start thinking about looking for other things and that would be things like celiac disease um, or hypothyroidism Um, but you would really expect other supporting signs and symptoms to go along with that diagnosis. Rebecca, you've mentioned red flags and differential diagnoses. I wonder if you could talk around these a little bit more, especially for our GP registrars who love red flags. So I love red flags as well. Um, When I'm thinking about constipation, I think it's a good way to think about it is to divide it into age groups. So I would um, have children under six months um, and then toddlers and then school-aged children. And I think your index of concern and suspicion decreases as the child gets older. So I'm not sure that all of my paediatric colleagues would agree with me, but in any child under six months of age, so any baby um, who has constipation, I, as a paediatrician, would want to hear about that. It's not normal for babies to be constipated. There's lots of um, non-serious causes that parents might um, interpret as constipation, but if you truly think that you have under six months who is constipated, then I think it does um, warrant a little bit um, further thought. Um, So some of the things that we think about in babies, obviously um, early on um, we have children who have um, congenital problems, so they might be born without the the ganglions that help your bowel peristalsis, so that's Hirschsprung's disease. And that will usually be picked up quite early, but sometimes it can be picked up a little bit later. Some of the clues to that, are the classic one is asking about when meconium was passed. So was it passed, did it take longer than 48 hours for meconium to pass? Um, and babies, the other one is having an imperfect anus. And we have had um, children who have presented quite late. So I think the latest one we had was about five or six weeks um, who had a fistula from an undetected imperfect anus. So I think it is, So it is worth having a good inspect and having a look around um, down there. Probably the most common differential that I hear about in um, babies is something called dyskesia, which is when babies are still developing the coordination to pass the bowel motion. And so they um, will strain and they'll go red and they might cry and seem in distress, like they're trying to push out the stool. Um, But then when they do actually um, have a bowel motion it's a soft normal yellow um, stool and so this just on history you can work that one out quite quickly and it's just a, about the baby straining against a closed um, anal sphincter and they haven't worked out how to coordinate the whole process and then probably the fourth um, thing to think about in babies would be a cow's milk protein um, intolerance usually we um, would see 
maybe some blood in the stool and it's usually more likely to cause diarrhea. But we might think about that diagnosis, especially if there were other supporting things like early onset eczema. And then if there was true constipation, you might be looking at something really serious like a spinal tumour. So I think those, in a baby, I think it's worth thinking about it quite carefully and probably having a low threshold to discuss. When you get to older toddler-aged children, they've usually developed um, constipation around the time that they've transitioned onto solids, so maybe over six months of age, um, or they've changed formula or their toilet training. So I think if you get a history of it happening at around that time, that can actually be quite reassuring. The things to start thinking about uh, is there a food intolerance that's doing something like this, and that would be uh, possibly another cow's milk protein um, situation. Once again, part of what you want to do is um, examine especially the spine and the lower limbs to make sure that there's no spinal tumour of a child who's um, going backwards with their development, who's losing weight. Um, those, those things would um, trigger me to investigate further. And then for older children, the possibility is that they could be presenting with actual diarrhea and not overflow diarrhea and so you'd be thinking about things like inflammatory bowel disease um, and also um, still um, tumours, those sorts of things um, and, and so you're, that's when you'd be asking about the blood in the stool and you'd think about sending off a calprotectin to look for um, gut inflammation. And then I suppose the one that um, we all really hope that we don't have to think about is abuse and, and so I suppose that would I would be triggered to think about that if the child um, was very very scared of of someone looking or touching around um, their anus or bottom um, and if they had lots of um, scars around their anus um, then that would also um, trigger me to be um, thinking about other things that could be happening. Thanks, Rebecca. No, we never want to have to come across that, but it's worth asking those questions, isn't it, and looking carefully to exclude abuse. I just had a quick question about red flags. So a child who, um, say, was dry day and night and then started wetting their pants as well as soiling, is the wetting the pants, um, so is that something that we need to worry about? I'd be thinking it was constipation and treat the constipation first. And I would probably ask about, you know, what other things are going on at the moment. Have they gone back to school? Are they being bullied? Just sort of check in and make sure that there's no stressors going on that have triggered what's happening. But, you know, I would think it was part of that um, elimination triad of wetting during the day, wetting at night and being constipated and soiling. Perfect. Thank you. In this young chat, um, impaction may be the presenting complaint rather than constipation or alongside constipation. So what were the clues in this history that would point to that diagnosis rather than simple constipation? It's pretty clear. He's, so the impaction um, has led to him presenting with um, overflow or soiling. Um, so really any child that presents with soiling in their underwear um, or of defecating in unusual places so hiding it um, behind curtains or behind chairs 
um, then I would think um, I'd be thinking about impaction. So one of, one of the presenting complaints that a parent might come along with their child is that their child has diarrhoea. Um, and that they're soiling their pants with diarrhoea. Um, and the, the most common um, cause for this is an overflow diarrhoea. And what I find is taking a really good history of about the poo helps, which can be a little bit embarrassing for everybody, but I think it does make it clearer what's going on. So I tend to ask um, what the poo smells like. Is it really, really foul smelling? Um, because poo that's been sitting in your tummy for a while smells much worse than poo that's come out quite quickly. Um, the other thing is asking about what it looks like. So does it sort of come out where it's a, maybe a little bit of a hard plug to start with and then there's a whole lot of liquidy stuff that comes behind it? That sounds like overflow. And then the actual substance of it, is it filled with chunks and varying degrees and dark colour um, and when you get a story of that and I think the, the foul smelling diarrhea so everybody says that diarrhea smells bad but um, when you ask is this particularly bad then everyone if it's overflow everyone's like yeah yeah you've, you've got to clear out the room so I think that's a, those are quite good questions to um, asked to help determine whether it's an overflow or um, a normal diarrhea. So moving on to management now, Rebecca, let's start with childhood constipation. How do we manage this? Uh, managing constipation is actually pretty straightforward. I separate it into two aspects. One is medication and making the stool soft and easy to pass, emptying out the bowel. And the other part is behavioural intervention. The behavioural intervention is probably the most important part, but of course it's the most difficult part. So in terms of um, medication, what we're trying to do is make each poo a soft, easy to pass um, stool that is difficult to hold on to. Uh, so there's lots of different um, protocols for this. Um, you can start with something like Lachulose, and then we, by the time you end up coming to see me, I'd usually start with some um, macro goal sachets and would quite often look at giving a sort of load of them at the beginning and what we'd call a washout. And then after that, um, taking something regularly. And I usually say that you need to be taking something regularly for at least three months and really need to think about the time that the child's been constipated and take the treatment for as long as they've been constipated as a rule of thumb. Usually, usually children will start off being quite happy to take either the lactulose or the macrogol sachets. So the lactulose is really sweet and they're like, oh yeah, that's okay, we can do that. Um, but once you've got them to do it every day for a few days or um, with the macrogol sachets, they have to drink, say, three or four of them a day, and then after that they start getting a bit sick of it. So some of the tricks that we um, sort of talk about to encourage children to take the medication, with the sachets you can mix them with other things. So you can mix them into water, you can mix them into milk. You can mix them into juice, but you just want to be aware that they're probably going to be drinking that for the next three months and it's not very good for their teeth if they're doing that. So they should probably rinse and wash their teeth if they're going to have it with juice. 
if you put it in the fridge, apparently it tastes a little bit better. The other thing that I talk about is trying to make it into a game so that it's, um, it's a bit more fun. So we talk about having races to see who can drink to the bottom of a glass of water for the grown-up and um, a sachet with water in it for the child. And I think it's also okay to explore other options, so things like um, prunes or prune juice, which are also not very good for your teeth, and kiwi fruit. So the important thing is that there's just something consistent that is keeping the stool soft. Um, and if you find, work out whatever that is and then, and then stay on it. So that's sort of the easy part. That's the medication aspect of it. Um, and then the behavioural part is getting the child to relearn what it feels like to get the sign that they need to go to the toilet. So when we're just managing constipation, this is not so important because they're usually still getting those signals and they're still passing the stool in the toilet. And so what you're asking them to do is sit regularly on the toilet to just keep encouraging that. But for the case that's discussed today, he has probably lost a lot of the awareness of when his rectum is full. And because of that, we'll have... Um, soiling accidents in his underpants and have no control over it. So I think that that's probably one of the important key messages to tell um, Fano and, and the child themselves is that you understand that the soiling is not something that they're doing on purpose and it's not something that they're doing because they're lazy. Um, it's because their bowels got so stretched and that that they're just not getting the message that they need to go anymore. And so what they need to do is sit regularly on the toilet and keep taking the medicine until eventually those signals will come back. And then when they get the signals, they have to listen to them and go and sit on the toilet. And I think quite often you see quite a bit of relief in the child's face because up until that point, they've been you know, told off for soiling in their pants and, and told that, that they're naughty and they really have no control over it. So all of what we're doing, we're talking about trying to empower the child so that they feel that they do have some control over some things. So the thing that a child has control over is sitting on the toilet. So when we do the reward chart, we reward them for sitting on the toilet for five minutes up to hopefully four times a day, which is a little bit hard when they're at school. And... It doesn't matter if they do a poo in the toilet. What matters is that they go and sit there and you want them to be comfortable. So if their feet are dangling, they have a little stool because if you lift your knees up, that makes it easier for you to relax your rectum and for the stool to come out. Um, and they sit there for five minutes and they get a star. And then at the end of the week, if they've got all their stars, then you can talk about a special reward. And it's really important that the thing that is being rewarded is the thing that the child has control over, which is sitting on the toilet. And then they need to keep doing that. Um, and, you know, and the children that um, we actually can get them to do this, so we, they take the medicine, they have a washout, and they take the medicine regularly, they sit on the toilet. It really only takes, um, when I see them back in six weeks, everything uh, will be going really, really well. And they'll need to keep on working on it for a little while, um, but usually within that time they've, they've stopped soiling. I think the difficulty is, is that it's actually really, really difficult to motivate 
busy families and children to do these things. So the more support that you can offer, the better. So I, the most I can do is um, a visit every six weeks. If you can see the child um, weekly, if your nurses can give a ring once a week to check up and see how things are going, it's really just to be supportive and encouraging make sure they keep taking the medicine. So quite often what will happen is the child will get diarrhoea and um, the family will think that the medicine, there's, that there's too much of it. Um, but really you, you've got to support them still taking something because you, you want the stool to stay soft and not go backwards. Uh, and then I think if you, if after an intensive six weeks with management like that and you haven't had success, then I think at that point it's probably time to think about asking your local friendly paediatrician for a bit of support. Um, but probably what we'll do is just we'll try that again. Um, and then um, we sometimes might add a few other more stimulant type medications in. And obviously at this point we might start thinking about other things that could be going on. But generally speaking, I think if we, if we had the ability to provide that level of behavioural support, most of these children wouldn't need to end up coming um, to see us and their outpatients. Rebecca, before we move on from the management of constipation, I often tell my families that they need to increase fluids and increase fruit and vegetables. So two, two servings of fruit and two servings of vegetables is what's recommended on the health pathways. And often families will say to me, my children won't eat fruit or they won't eat vegetables. Do you have any tips for compliance and getting children to eat their veggies? So, well, first of all, I'll make the comment that one of the differences between childhood constipation and adult or grown-up constipation um, is that it doesn't really seem to be that related to what you eat. So even children that eat lots of fruit and veggies and drink lots of water will still have constipation and um, and just by increasing those things, it doesn't seem to help. So you do need to do the behavioural aspect of it. And I think that's because it's a lot of childhood constipation is a it's a behavioural chronic condition. In terms of getting children to eat their vegetables, um, I just talk about uh, how it takes around seven tries for anybody to actually start to enjoy it. So always offer it on the plate. So um, I'm an advocate for everybody sitting to trying to sit together to sh eat meals together, have the food on the food on the plate. And then the plan is that everybody tries everything on their plate. So they just have to have one bite of everything on their plate. And if they don't like it, that's okay. They don't have to eat it, but they have to try it. Um, and you, and the theory is that you do that, enough times and they will start to actually think it's not that bad. I think that there's a, we underestimate the social importance of eating. Um, so uh, any, anyone with a young um, um, baby who's, who's starting to learn to eat will be aware that they're watching and they watch and they want to join in in the social aspect of it. So they are mimicking and they're reaching out and they want to join in. So I think that, and that extends right up to older children as well. So everybody's sitting together for dinner and having some sort of um, rules around just things like trying everything on your plate. You don't have to finish your plate, uh, but you have to try it. And then obviously there's those um, 
those tricks where you mix vegetables into things that they do like. So spaghetti bolognese with lots of grated carrots and courgettes and um, or trying vegetables in different ways, I think is the other thing. So trying them raw um, with dips, those sorts of things. And then actually the thing that worked the best for my whanau was um, uh, having my preschooler come home from kindy and they'd made vegetable soup. And I think it actually tasted pretty terrible, but because she had been involved in the whole um, exercise, she was quite excited about it. And then she wanted to make it for us at home. So she, we got into a habit of every Monday, she would um, help me peel and chop the vegetables and then and stir the soup and we'd make a vegetable soup. And then she would have to eat it because it was something that she'd made. And then after a while, they love that now, but I'm pretty sure to start with it, they didn't actually like it, but it was more of the whole fun of doing it. So I think um, getting kids involved in the prep and um, all of that stuff as well helps with vegetables. Great. Some great tips there. Thank you, Rebecca. So just moving on to the management of impaction now, can you talk us through this? Um, so I think I've, I've sort of addressed this a little bit with the medication and the, the behaviour. So... It's really um, using medication to clear things out, but then the important thing is to keep using medication to keep the stool soft so that the bowel has a chance to shrink back to place and all of the signals start um, coming back. Uh, But it's got to come with behavioural support, so getting the child to sit regularly on the toilet. I'd like to bring our listeners' attention to a New Zealand based action plan that the team at Counties Manukau District Health Board have been involved in. Can you talk us through this action plan and why it was developed and why it was seen to be so important? Um, So our um, GP liaison, um, Dr Christine McIntosh, um, wrote, she wrote the um, guideline and she's one of the editors for our local health pathways. So she recognised with our paediatric outpatient team that we were seeing a lot of children in the outpatient clinic that probably didn't need to be coming for secondary paediatric services, um, but were being referred with um, constipation and some of them soiling. And um, there clearly wasn't a lot of um, knowledge about the best way to approach it. So um, that's why she developed that um, excellent action plan and I use it all the time with my patients as well. Um, So it has a, on the front, it's got a disinfection regime, which is a little bit different to the one that we use in clinic, Um, but I think it's actually probably a little bit better because it does it for a few more, a little bit of a longer period. The aim of the disinfection is to clear out everything that's in there. So I think you you need to ask questions about whether the disinfection actually worked and that and those questions are things like you know did did your child get diarrhea did it almost become liquid with did it have no chunks left in it so if this is achieved after three days then you can stop but if you need longer then you can keep going longer Um, also on the front page it has a a little prescription where you can um, write what the regular medication is going to be once they go home. There's also a chart for recording like a, a stool diary to keep a record of what's going, and then an example of a reward chart. Um, so I use that to talk through 
how to use a reward chart, how to do the disinfection and then the importance of taking something regular, regularly. Um, also on our health pathways, um, we've also got the red flags to watch out for the history and examination things that I've talked about today. Um, so I think that I'm actually quite passionate about constipation, which is a bit of a weird thing to say. But, you know, when you meet, especially school-aged children who are soiling their pants, it has such a major impact on their lives and their parents' lives. And it really, it is something that with a little bit of perseverance, we can fix it and that makes such a big difference. Um, and so that's why I think it is something that... Um, that we should pay, you know, a bit of attention to and try and put a bit of effort into helping these kids. I think the really difficult ones to help are the ones that have underlying behavioural problems. Um, and, I, and I do have, I have a little group of boys usually who are sort of nine to ten, um, who also, they, they won't take medicine, they won't sit on the toilet. And so we have to look at addressing their behavioural things before we can address the toileting. But once we do, it just is transformational for their lives. And I really do think it's, it's something that's really important. And it, is, it doesn't need a lot of expertise. So I think that it is something that we can be doing right through um, from primary care, secondary care. Can you please conclude our podcast today with some take-home messages for our listeners? The most important take-home messages, I think, I would like you to remember are that... Constipation is a, a chronic condition. Uh, you need two um, arms to treat it. That's medication to keep the stool soft and behavioural to get the child sitting regularly. When you take a really good history and ask lots of embarrassing questions about the poo and then have a quick look at the bottom, the spine, and check the knee reflexes, and then you can be pretty confident to go ahead and um, manage that constipation aggressively. I suppose the other point I didn't make during the talk was that sometimes when I'll meet children who are on quite small doses of lactulose and the parents have been told that you can get addicted to the lactulose or that the lactulose um, is dangerous if you have too much of it. So we use quite large doses so I would quite happily go up to 20 mils a day in smaller children, maybe even 40 in bigger children to get things moving. And then think about switching to the um, macrogol sachets. And for children, I think that, that there is, there's no evidence that these medicines are causing your bowel to become dependent on them and that we're using them with an end in sight because we want them to just aid while they're retraining to sit regularly on the toilet and then and then they would eventually stop them. So um, they're also quite safe medicines that I wouldn't be too concerned about using. Thanks, Rebecca. Just on those large doses, as our very last point, do we need to wean the doses down? No, I, I wouldn't. I mean, I think I'd be using that, and then you'd have a period of, of hopefully good control, and then I would be looking at just making sure that the diet had lots of vegetables and fruit in it, and then if the stool was, if they were getting a little bit of diarrhea or the stool was normal, would say, okay, well, let's try stopping it. I suppose if you were on doses that were up to 20 a day or 40 a day, I might just say take it once a day for a little while and see what happens.
Thanks, Rebecca. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim some CPD points for listening to this podcast, please fill in the Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. You'll also find a list of resources, including Dr. McIntosh's action plan on our website. Thanks for listening.